Suffering is an inevitable subject if we are in the world and also if we are in the word. Um, I'm sure that on this pulpit you will have heard many sermons on that very subject, many sermons on suffering and preaching on suffering. Uh, But I have to confess that sometimes I feel personally incompetent to speak on the subject because I know that although I have experienced some suffering in life, I haven't suffered anywhere near as much as others. I probably haven't suffered as much as many of you in this room. Although I I imagine that qualification can be true for all of us to some extent. um, That we can all point to people who are suffering more than us. We can all point to horrific events and say, well, things could be worse for me. Um, And and that's not to deny the authenticity of the the genuineness of our suffering, but it's, it's putting things in perspective. And so as I approached the section of the book of Ruth this morning, and Ruth is a powerfully, poetically written book, and so there's the author is able at points to capture the pathos, the emotion of what he wants to communicate vividly. Um, and, and when he captures with such accuracy for us the despondency, the desperate desperation, the pain that Naomi is, is going through at this point, having lost loved ones, having been widowed and placed in this place of serious Uh, insecurity and uh, helplessness, vulnerability, Um, having lost children, um, having to return back to her homeland, as she says, empty after having been full, you know. Um, As I approach this section, I, I, I asked myself, I said, what qualifies me to preach on a passage like this? What qualifies me personally to preach on a passage that depicts suffering as deep and as miserable as the one that Naomi complains about? A few weeks ago, I was at the, a conference called the Aberystwyth Conference, and the, the main speaker who was speaking through the Psalms, um, he was a man who had gone through much suffering. He had with him his, his wife who was in a wheelchair and who he was taking care of, Um, He had lost loved ones, and when he spoke about suffering, you knew he was speaking about it with a certain perspective, with a certain experience. I don't have that same kind of um, depth. And and so I had to answer the question, otherwise I wouldn't come this morning, it'd be too late for me to find someone else to replace me. What what would make me preach this? Um, Well, well, I I said, well, even though my suffering is nowhere near as deep as it could be. I've also suffered too. Uh, and yes, compared to Naomi, my suffering will appear insignificant. Yet that suffering is, is real, right? So you suffer something like heartbreak. That's the only suffering you've really suffered. And someone might say, oh, heartbreak is what's making you feel you suffered. You know, you know, people are dying. It's true, but at the same time, it's not true, is it? Because the pain, the pain is real. If you suffer heartbreak, your boyfriend leaves or girlfriend leaves or whatever. That, that's, it's real pain. 
it's suffering. It, 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 it enervates. Nice fancy word for you. It, it, it weakens, right? You feel weak. You feel helpless. Just like people in greater bouts of suffering do. So even if my suffering is not compared to Naomi, I, I, I know something of suffering I thought to myself. Another thing is, I may one day suffer as much as Naomi does. I hope not to. But nothing is certain in this world. I live in the same world where this sort of misery befell Naomi. So this sort of misery can befall me. I remember a few years ago, we were going through the book of Corinthians. This is our, our elder, our, one of the founding elders of this church, Eastern House. Some of you not, will know him well. Some of you have never met him, just heard of him. And he was taking us through his Bible study. And I never forget what he said in the Bible study. He, he was talking about suffering, and he was given all these rules for suffering. And maybe he noticed there was a disconnect between himself and the younger, much younger than the now congregation at the time. Uh, because maybe many of us hadn't gone through, we hadn't understood to be, what it was like to be in that place of deep suffering that he was referring to. And he said, he said, he said listen, he said, Prepare your mind to be ready to go through suffering like that. It, it was one of the most, it, 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 it stuck with me. I was, I was so surprised that he would say that. But he, he, told, he, he said, listen, you, you never know when suffering will come. So begin to prepare your mind. Don't, don't, don't live carelessly, foolishly, naively. He, he was saying, as a man who has suffered himself, I, I could believe him. He was saying, there is such a way to think about suffering and to prepare in such a way that when it comes, you are not taken all the way by surprise. And the heart has some kind of fortitude. Now, you never have enough fortitude. You're always going to need grace for when that time comes. But at least to some degree. And that might be a good reason to preach like this, even if I haven't gone through suffering like this. The very fact that I might do one day, I'd like to prepare myself for uh, as much as I can. And lastly, because they always, the, the word of God is always true and relevant. So if I may not speak from deep experience, which I cannot, and maybe at some point, those of you who have suffered more deeply will, will notice that, you will sense this, at least I can speak words of truth, trusting that because they are God's own words, they will resonate with the faithful, and they will provide comfort. For those people who might, you might hear me and say, you've never, you say you've never been through deep suffering, but your words make it seem like you know what I'm going through because God's words are true and guidance for us. I, I am sensitive to the fact that I cannot, especially me in the unique position I find myself, having not gone through what so many have gone through, I cannot step into the same shoes as you. I cannot identify with your suffering as deeply, but I want to speak words of truth. So this morning, we look at Naomi's sincere and passionate account of how deeply she had suffered when she came back. She came back home, and these people met her with greetings, and they said, is this Naomi? She's back home after all this time. And, um, they ex and that must add to the pain, that, that expectation, that sense of disappointing the people. Um, but Naomi wasn't deterred by that. She, she told him the truth. Yes, no, no, no. Don't call me Naomi. Her name meant pleasant, sweet. She said, there's nothing sweet about this old lady right now. There's nothing sweet about her life. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because God has brought me back 
empty because God himself has opposed me. God has decided to be my, uh, to testify against me. God has decided to be my prosecution in court. And if God is against me, what does it matter who is for me? This was Naomi's response to her life getting bitter, to suffering, to trials, to pain. And we all go through some kind of suffering, maybe some people worse than others. We will all go through some kind of suffering, maybe some worse than others. And what I want to say us this morning is what we are to make of Naomi's response and how it's to guide us. Is this, now there are, there are if you read commentaries on the book of Ruth, if you read um, yeah, commentaries on the book of Ruth, you find that Christians have this internal debate between themselves. On Naomi's words, is her, is her response a response of a woman of faith? Or is it a response of a woman who is walking in unbelief? Not saying that Naomi is not a Christian, but is this a Christian response? You know, sometimes Christians can give unchristian responses. People of faith can give responses that are flowing from a place of unbelief. The way Naomi spoke about her situation, the way she explained things, the way she pictured and captured things, was it a mark of a woman who was trusting God or a woman who was taking her eyes off God? It's a question. And, you know, the most brilliant of commentators, I've read some of them, they've fallen on either side. I've read one who praises Naomi for her example and her her faithful, her, 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 her faith-filled confession and, the, and her sincerity and genuineness before God. I've read another who, even taking into account some of the steps that lead to Naomi being in this position, says this is a woman speaking from a place of unbelief, a woman who speaks with the kind of audacity against God that we ought not to um, imitate, but actually we ought to, to see as... Uh, an indication, a mark of the fact that even the best of Christians and even believers can, can fall into wrong thinking. Now, usually what a preacher would do, he wouldn't even tell you that those two things were possible with a narrative. I would just come here, it's a narrative. I'll come here, I'll tell you what I lean, what, I'll, I'll tell you what view I lean towards, and I'll just preach that. You can debate the rest among yourselves. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to posit, I'm going to present both those interpretations as having some legitimacy, I'm going to acknowledge that those are both viable ways of interpreting the text because the author himself is not doing it for us. He's just telling us what Naomi says. He doesn't tell us what to make of the motivation behind the words. And you can read both motivations into Naomi's confession and still come out with a sensible interpretation of the book of Ruth. So you can read Naomi's reaction negatively or you can read it positively I am not trying to cover up that I have a position on the matter. I read Naomi's words positively, but I could be wrong. Uh, my intention is to say to you that there are things to learn from both approaches to Naomi's confession. There's also a reason, there's an inherent reason why this debate might even exist, why we may read Naomi's words negatively, because we know that it's possible for those words to be negatively. And, and so we know that there are negative responses, if you want, responses of unbelief uh, to God bringing suffering to us. There's a way to respond to suffering and trial and bitterness. And sometimes Christians respond in ways that 
are pleasing to God, ways that show that we're walking in faith. Sometimes we respond in the wrong ways. And I want to look at those two, those two things. And so the first interpretation will be a warning to us about what to avoid when trials and sufferings do come, the, the mindset we want to avoid, while the other will be um, speaking positively about how um, we are to uh, respond and how there is some positive element to take from how Naomi responds. Before I do that, though, before we look at these two options, I want to, I said those are two viable options, approaches to Naomi's confession. I want to draw your attention to some illegitimate ways in which we might interpret this text. So those, I'm going to look in a second at the two legitimate ways, even though they're different, but they're two legitimate ways to read the text. But initially, I want to tell you that there's some illegitimate ways. There's some illegitimate things, thoughts that, sh- that flow out of the text, which, generally speaking, from the way Christians sometimes treat suffering, it, uh, it, it is useful that we warn ourselves against them. A number of things. So, And these are approaches to suffering. And bitterness. So you come across a passage like Ruth chapter 1 and from verse 19 and you see Naomi's confession. And sometimes in the church, these are the sort of emotions, the viewpoint that will be evoked. And I'm saying these are totally legitimate. These are totally incorrect. These are totally unbiblical. One is, if you might, if you, people who question the realism, they say, um, I know this cannot be a place of faith because of, in a sense, how sincere she was, right? They, they can't believe that Christians would speak their, their heart and their mind so openly to God. All Naomi did was say where she was. At this point in her life, she was a bitter woman. At this point in her life, she was in pain. She wasn't dancing a lot. She wasn't singing a lot. She was weeping and crying a lot. She was broken. And so she was just being real about her feelings, about who she is, about what she's going through. And the viewpoint that I'm talking about that opposes what Naomi says here is one that strangely exists in the church because some human beings will always find something to masquerade with. And sometimes it's even faith. And sometimes in the church, Christians think that somehow... Following Jesus and being spiritual means that we cannot be real and sincere, and yet God loves sincerity. God, God prefers your honesty over your, your niceness. Be true. We should, we should applaud Naomi for being an example of the fact that people can tell God, we can tell God how we are, what we feel, what's on our minds, and we can be weak. We can be frightened. We can be discontented. We, can, we could have had enough. And it's important for us to be real. And if we're not going to be sincere before God, then it's likely that we're not going to be real before men. You know, after this, today, we're going to have a, a baby dedication, Brother Michael's baby dedication. And I remember, a long time ago, well, Brother Michael used to always say, he used to always say, he'd always have this thing. When we'd have, you have conversations, and you say, let's be real. Just be real. I used to think, what's this guy talking about? What's he talking about? Like, what's he saying? Be real, be real. Like, I'm being real. And it took me some years to realize how typical it is for Christians to use their, their faith to be fake. 
to not be sincere, to, to, to pretend to be, you know, you, you, you stay among a group of people who are prayer warriors, and you don't want to look. You don't want to look weird. You don't want to look inferior. You don't want people to reject you. So you start to pretend. Instead of saying, I'm, I'm struggling with prayer. I'm wrestling with prayer. As a pastor, when people sit in front of me, there's nothing I, I, I need more than you to be sincere. Don't tell me, I, I want, it's not nice to hear, but I'd rather you tell me, I, I really don't want to be here anymore. I really don't want to be in that relationship anymore. I really am struggling to see God's goodness in this. I really am struggling to love Jesus Christ. I'm really being drawn. You need to be real people and confess and, and tell the truth. And we shouldn't, if we look down on Naomi because she's sincere, what a wrong view of Christianity we have. You know, apparently this is something that easily befalls those of us in reformed circles or reformed culture. Apparently um, there is a tendency in reformed settings to say, don't, um, don't, don't confess, don't be feelingful, don't confess your feelings. We say, oh, your feelings, you know, I've heard people say, don't say you feel like, because what's, What's feelings? If that's true, I'm not accusing, I'm saying people have said it. If that's true, well, that is absolute nonsense. Of course, you have to be in tune with your feelings. You have to confess your feelings. Your feelings are absolutely important because you don't know, what do you, you don't know yourself. How are you going to know what you're saying, what you're thinking, what help you need? You're not being true. This is how I feel. I'm not saying that you have to validate your feelings. I'm not saying that your feelings are necessarily always right or true or binding. But don't underestimate why God gave you that. That's why when the Bible talks about worshiping God, it uses words like joy, peace, feeling full things. And I maybe said this in the past as well. People say, oh, you know, joy is not about, it's not about how you feel. Huh? What is it? Of course it's about that. God wants us to feel the truth and and uh, be real with yourselves. And this is why some of us have such a bad sense of self-awareness. Because we are not real. We allow, we, we allow our views of ourselves to be clouded by the pressure of the judgment of others. I, I don't want this person to look to me a certain way. And I, re I, I really, I decided in myself, only a few years ago, I would never be fake in front of someone. I don't care what status they have. I don't care how they're going to view me. I'm going to be a real person. Because this is who I am. And if I give you a shell of myself just to impress you, so what? I'm going back to my own home, to my own self. We must strive to be real because it's only God that matters at the end of the day. He searches, he judges the heart. So we can be sincere. There's nothing to be ashamed of Naomi here. She's an honest woman and we have, there's no rebuking her for that. Saying, I'm not here, I'm, I don't, I'm not in the mood for dancing or partying, I'm, I'm sad. I'm broken, I'm bitter, and I, I have no explanation for why things are happening the way they are. I don't have a calm um, posture. I'm not composed. I'm all over the place. Why should we be ashamed about Naomi for speaking like that? I'm gonna, if I stay on this point too long, I won't finish the sermon. The second thing is it's kind of it's a sadistic approach. It's almost like the... The, uh, the other side of, of, of the same coin is a sadistic approach to suffering that basically says, why should Naomi even be complaining about suffering? It's what Christians are meant to go through. It's what people go through. Does he realize that it's good for Christians? 
you know, suffering is good for you. As though, as though suffering in and of itself is good. As though suffering in and of itself is something you're meant to rejoice in. Suffering is not something you're meant to re- rejoice in and of itself. The Bible does tell us to rejoice in suffering, but only because of what Jesus Christ has done to our understanding of suffering. If suffering was good in and of itself, when we get to heaven, there would be suffering. If suffering was good in and of itself, suffering wouldn't have been introduced as judgment after we sinned. And there's no need for you to pretend like you want to suffer. Right? And it distorts God's character when Christians present that image. As though we really delight in suffering. So everything has to be minimal. So, we, so don't talk about beauty. And don't you dare dress nice. And don't eat well. And don't go to nice places. Because we're just meant to suffer. And uh, like, like the Bible doesn't say that God gives us all these things. Uh, richly to enjoy, abundantly, right? Um, Suffering was not the initial aim of God's creation. Now it's a means to something, and God is going to use it to glorify himself, and yes, we can rejoice in that. But of course, suffering is not something in and of itself that we want, right? Suffering is not necessarily a good thing, as it were. And so that's not our approach to suffering either. Suffering, no feelings, um, stoic and... You know, so, so we're always meant to suffer anyway. No, 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 we, we lament. That's why the Bible has lament, lament all over it. In the Psalms, the prophets, people weeping. Creation is weeping. The other thing is a, a wrong way to look at this is, is what I call a, a prosperity gospel mentality. And so that person says, yeah, Naomi is in the wrong because suffering is not for the believer. And bad things can't happen to us because we are God's children. And so um, that person is already offended by the fact that Naomi says something like, God has brought me back empty. She says, no, she's definitely in the wrong, because God will never do that to his people. God doesn't do that to us. Absolute nonsense. Absolutely unbiblical. Says, God, God doesn't sleep. So if something happens to us, he's definitely not simply aware of it. To, some, to a large degree... He's allowing it. It's part of his plan. And so we don't want a prosperity gospel mentality. We don't want a a mentality that denies evil and doesn't want to face up to um, the trouble that's in this world. Don't be like that, Christians. Don't have a, let's call it a soft life mentality. Right? So we, we, we rebuke people who love they, 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 they like to pretend like you can't enjoy creation. Yeah, we rebuke that. But there's some people as well who pretend like life is all a bed of roses. I just want to live a soft life. Don't be caught saying such nonsense and meaning it. Okay, if you're bantering, that's your business. But don't, don't mean that. You, you have to be deep people. Right? Sometimes you're on your way to enjoy your soft life while your, your brother or your sister comes with grief. You have to have perspective. Right? You have to be a balanced person. And you, you, you put things in perspective. You, you know that Christians... Don't be caught saying silly, pointless statements. Oh, God forbid this will ever happen to me. Just, just, just talking carelessly. You realize that Christians go through grief and pain and loss. That will never happen to you. Don't, 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 that will never happen to me. And don't, don't do that nonsense. It, it can happen to you. Your God can bring it your way. You know? We, not a prosperity gospel mentality. 
The last thing, I, I, though, is, is a, the other side of this as well is, is, a, is, is what I say is, is you might call the blame game. And that person reads Naomi. And it's really a prosperity gospel mentality. They want to believe that bad things can't happen to them. And so they look at Naomi and they say, okay, a bad thing did happen to this child of God. But it, there must be a reason. There must be something that Naomi did. And so is this attempt to try and attribute direct fault uh, for the suffering of others? You say, oh, people are, if this person goes, goes through this, there must be something they did wrong. Did someone die in their family? Maybe they weren't praying hard enough. Did someone, uh, did, they, did they, they not get a, a, a job? Uh, they, they've not got a good job yet. They're not giving well enough. Right? Um, they, 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 there's this heart desire. They've not found their, their significant other or whatever. Oh, they, maybe they're not, they're, not, uh, they, they, not, they're not in the center of God's will. All kinds of things. We're trying to find reason to attribute for the suffering. You are not the interpreter of, of God's providence. And the Bible totally refuses the suggestion that you can always link suffering to a person's sin. Remember there was a guy blind from birth and the disciples said, who sinned? And Jesus Christ says, nobody. It was for the glory of God. You just be quiet and thank God that you see. But it's nothing to do with how good you've lived. Friends, the point of all this is we don't want to be bad counselors. That's one of the worst things. For yourself... Can you imagine someone who goes around trying to blame themselves for the evil that happens? What a bad counselor you are to yourself. What extra grief that you heap upon yourself, blaming yourself for suffering in this world and trying to connect. What have I done? And, 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 and now you begin to think that God is this God who is exacting from you. Um, uh, it's a, a bargain. You, you do this and you earn this and you forget that. How good is God to us when we don't deserve it? And here you are looking at that person they have all that you want, the job, the relationship, the house, they have everything. And you're just like, and you don't know that that person hasn't been praying for months. You see them walk into the vestry with the elder, you say, oh, what a God. And you don't know what they're saying to the, the, the elder is, I don't even know where my Bible is at the moment. God does good things to people who are living poorly all the time. And that kind of foolish pride that says I can earn God's goodness. Right? can't earn that. We want to be good counselors. We want to go to my brother in his brokenness, my sister in her brokenness, and say, what, what have you done wrong? Is what I'm asking. That's what Joe's friends did, right? What have you done wrong? Okay, so let me go to these two interpretations. Don't be scared. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be uh, straight and brief. Okay, not say brief, but I'll be, I'll be direct. Um, two things. It's possible to read this text reasonably and say, Naomi is, I, I phrase it this way. There's two things Naomi could be doing here. She could either be complaining about God, and I'll call that the wrong attitude, even though there's a sense in which it can be the right attitude, if you're complaining about God to God. And depending on what your complaints are, there's a way you can, you can complain about, about, about God to God, and it's actually a, a righteous thing to do. But let's use this to represent a negative reality. She could just be complaining about God, and that would be a sin to complain about how God runs the universe and to question his authority. Or she could be complaining to God. And that's positive. And so when we find ourselves in times of bitterness and sorrow, let us not complain about God. We should resist that. If that's what Naomi's doing there, you resist that. 
But let us complain to God. If that's what Naomi is doing here, it's absolutely um, appropriate. Let's look at that first. Negatively, she could be complaining about God. You know, interestingly, Naomi says, call me Mara. And you know, um, the other place where we see Mara in the Old Testament is where the children of Israel are murmuring because the waters are bitter. And, and Moses is instructed to do something to, to make the waters go sweet. And they, they remember that place as Mara. But that place is also remembered for their murmuring, their grumbling. I'm not saying that necessarily um, seals the deal as to what Naomi's mindset is. But it tells us one thing that would be wrong. Is, is Naomi murmuring? Is she simply murmuring and complaining? And the Bible says that murmuring is a sin. To grumble is a sin. I wrote about this in our, in our newsletter just recently. In the New Testament, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians, do not grumble. It's still a command for Christians, even though we often forget. And sometimes Christians perpetually are grumblers, you know? Like you're living your whole life. You're just a grumbler. You grumble about everything. The kids, your job, your friends, your church, your pastor. You grumble, you grumble, you grumble. You're perpetually murmuring. And you don't realize that it's a sin to live this way, this ungratefulness, this accusation before the God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, don't be a grumbler. Instead, give thanks. You know, it was late, I say late in my life, it was later in my life of praying that I realized that I prayed like a grumbler because Paul says, and the scriptures say that you should always pray with thanksgiving. And you know, for so long, I struggled to think what that could mean. I was like, what do you mean pray? I have issues. How can I always pray with this? So I would just chuck a little thanksgiving at the top and finish off. It wasn't too much later that I realized that even in the most desperate times, when I needed great things. There was something to be thankful for. Even when I'm praying about, say for example, God to, to keep me against a great sin. Why didn't I start by saying thank you for even allowing me to know that I need to resist sin? You see, and thanksgiving ought to color all of our lives. Let your lips be full of praise more than they are of murmuring and complaining. The Lord doesn't want you to be a grumbler. Generally in life. Generally. He doesn't want you to do that. That's the wrong attitude. Something defective in the heart. Resist it. But in particular, when things go bad, we think that it's now suitable to murmur against God, to complain about him. To say, and I tell you what, murmuring is, is the very essence of this. Rather than bringing your complaints to God, you take it to others. Or you, or you throw it, in the air, you say it to yourself, and is, 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 is Naomi doing that? Is she murmuring? I don't know that we can say for certain that she is. Nothing in those words in and of itself tell us that she is doing that. She could be. When she says, God has brought me back empty, and he's judging me after all, he's testifying against me. She could be complaining, questioning the, the consistency of God's character. That's what murmuring does. That's, that, that's why murmuring was such a great sin. It, it was questioning the character of God, and God doesn't play with his revelation. Children of Israel, I don't change. That's why you are not consumed. I'm always good. We, we sing a, a song. I think we're going to sing it to this afternoon. What is our only, what is our hope in, in life and death? God is good. God is good. 
No matter what happens. Remember the, the, psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 73? That's a psalm of a man who is complaining. Not the righteous complaining that you find in other psalms, but a sinful, myopic, um, narrow-minded, faithless complaining. And he's, before he details how he was complaining foolishly, you know what he starts off by saying? Truly God is good. Because the murmurer is questioning that truth. That's what we do when we murmur. Where we have the audacity to question the goodness of God. Satan wants you to murmur. Because once you question the character of the unchanging one, once he can bring you to do that, then you are losing all the foundations. Once he can bring you to question the edict of the amen, the one whose word is true, then what do you have to stand on? Murmuring, even in times of bitterness. Lament, weep, sleep, right? Crawl up and just lay there. But don't complain against God. Don't murmur. Don't question whether he's who he says he is. Another thing that we can do in times of bitterness that Naomi could be guilty of here is denying secondary causes. So Naomi says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. There's two things to that. That could be a powerful affirmation of God's sovereignty. Or Naomi could be making a theological mistake and saying that because God is sovereign, the means that God uses or allows to accomplish his purposes never need to be differentiated from God himself. Now, here's the point. God is so sovereign that he even allows the sins of men and women to be used to accomplish his purposes. But God is not the sins of men and women. That's why the Bible says God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. Don't ever say that even though God is supremely sovereign over evil and temptation. God is sovereign over allowing Satan into the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't God that tempted Adam and Eve to sin, or it wasn't God who brought the fall. It was Satan in a very true way. Is it mysterious? I think yes. But who are we to try and reveal that which God has kept secret? When you're in times of suffering, don't deny secondary causes. Let me say something that would almost seem like I'm contradicting what I said before. Some of us, in times of suffering, we all of a sudden, we, we, may, we may not want to see how we have caused our suffering. I said we shouldn't play, play the blame game. You can't always draw a direct link between why you suffer, what you did, and why you suffer. But sometimes you can. Same Jesus that says, no one sinned, they saw the glory of God. Also said to one, go and sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. Sometimes you are suffering because of something you've done. So don't deny the reality of secondary causes. Here's a man who can't see his children, who is in the middle of a terrible divorce because he cheated on his spouse. And he's going to God and crying. How could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to you, is the question to be asking. Here's someone who doesn't have great financial stability at the moment. They're seeing all their friends doing well, 
and advancing in life and owning this and owning that, and they don't. And they're complaining, how could God? And then you say, oh, what did you study at uni again? I said, ah. You know, when my friends were going to uni, I decided I was going to go and play. And when they were studying, I decided I would go and fraternize and be enjoying myself. And now, I don't have the same stability there. Well, brother, let's not waste time calling things mystery. We know what your issue is. And this happens over and over again in life. Our disobedience leads us... Now, I love the God that loves me even when my failings brought me to my failure. I love that God. We love the God that is good to us even when it's our evil that has caused our problem. I would never tell a Christian otherwise. Even when you can say, this is the moment in my life when I started this mess that I'm in. I, I will tell you that you, you serve a God who's going to love you right through that mess. And he will keep you. He will uphold you. He will even cover your shame. He's a gracious God. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that sometimes God doesn't allow us to taste the consequences for our own actions. And very often we have to be very careful. And it's, it's a mysterious thing to do. But yes, sometimes our not prioritizing our spiritual life can lead to certain damages and the emptiness that we feel. So let's not deny the, the, the genuineness of secondary causes. Let's not deny that Satan is in the world as well. Satan is doing harm. The older folk in our church, they used to say this all the time, sometimes. And sometimes I thought they were doing it too much. But older people say, they'll tell you, I'm sick, I can't come to church. And they'll say something like, you know, I, was try, I, was, I, I came to church this morning, even though Satan didn't want me to, because I was in so much pain. And I knew Satan didn't want me to come, but I finally came. Now, I used to always say, okay, you, you can't, you know, Let's not blame everything. We don't know what Satan is doing. But I admire now the, 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 the desire to be keenly aware of Satan's presence in the world, Satan's existence. I'm not saying that you should now go and start blaming things on Satan. What I'm saying is, you know you, you can avoid satanic things, though. You know there's sometimes that you're, you're the one pulling yourself into satanic influences as if you don't think demons are real. They're real. The third thing that we shouldn't do when we go through times of bitterness. And that Naomi could be doing, I'm not saying that she is, but she could be, is refusing to hope. We can lament, we can weep, we can feel, contrary to what people say, we can be tired, but we must seek the power to hope. Don't stop hoping. Don't become despondent to the point of saying, I don't think God will defend me anymore. I don't think God will come for me. Remember how the psalmist those psalms that close, why are, you, why are you downcast? Hope in God. Even after I have lamented, you say, I know my Redeemer lives. And when we counsel each other and when we're in times of bitterness, Satan wants to extinguish every last bit of hope that you have in you. Naomi says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me bitter. And there's truth to that. And at the same time, I want to say, but Sister Naomi, I hope you're not saying that in the sense that I will never be sweet again, or in the sense that God hasn't done sweet for me, or in the sense that this God cannot turn the bitter to sweet because he really does. He makes the bitter sweet. Don't stop hoping in God. Don't stop living righteously. That's one thing you can't do. In the worst kind of bitterness, it can be slow. It can be staggered. But don't let Satan convince you that you need to forego 
the people of God. So that, that happened. People are going through so much. They're so sad. And that's when they decide to stop coming to church. And that's when they decide to stop talking to the saints. To stop listening to the word. Oh, and thank God I've seen examples of people who I know, they, they've come to church. And um, you can't see what's on their face. You see a smile on their face. You can't see the pain within. But they, they, they bring themselves to church regardless. Because they say, where else can I go? He has the words of eternal life. Don't stop hoping in Christ when you go through bitterness. When serious bitterness comes, remember that that's the thing that Satan will attack. Your hope in Jesus. Everything he's doing, he's doing to try and make you say, I don't need this Jesus. I can walk away from him. And that's what I'm saying. Listen, come to Jesus and cry about it. Weep. Tell him I don't understand. Tell him I wish you didn't allow this to happen, Jesus. But tell it to him. Say it to him. Stay with him. Hope in him. Hope in him. Don't, 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 don't let sanctified, a sanctified tongue become a home for profanity and cursing. Don't let your heart give way to bitterness. Don't start mistreating others. Hope, hope, hope. The last other thing, of course, the positive is that maybe Naomi was complaining to, to, to God. So when you are in times of serious bitterness, this you should do. Like, and, and, and maybe this is what Naomi is doing and we, we don't want to misunderstand her. Complain to God. Be sincere. Tell God what's on your mind. Tell God how you feel. And I love Naomi, who's not deterred by the impression that it might make on others. Imagine in front of all those people, say, is this Naomi? And they want to dance with her. And she said, no, call me Mara. She's not going to allow the fanfare take away the requirement that she has to be sincere. And you can cry to God. And I know that can happen in church life. Sometimes church is a buzzing place. People are buzzing spiritually. And people are excited and but you're in a place where you're low and you can tell God that and you don't have to pretend you can be sincere and you can cry out to him. You, you ever heard the words someone once uttered? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the very son of God, I feel forsaken. Sometimes I feel like equally as amazing as that is, let this cup pass over my head. The very thing for which he was born. But Jesus was the epitome of sincerity before his... There was nothing hidden from his father. This is why I came, but if there was a way for this to pass over my head, your will, not mine, but there's sincerity. And if Jesus Christ could speak that way with sincerity, who are you to hold back? We can cry. As long as we're crying to God, God, I am afraid. I don't know what to do. I'm not strong. I'm not brave. I'm not rejoicing in the invisible promises. I'm not expecting as I should do it. I know I should, and, and the word says, and I believe your word, but I'm not doing it. Help me, God. Because only in sincerity do you go to, pr to prayer. What are those lament psalms? Those psalms where they're prayers. These people are crying to God. It's okay to be sincere as long as we're talking to God. Say, help me. Help me, God. The pain is unbearable. And God walks with his people, but you can be sincere. The ne next thing is she's recognizing his sovereignty. It's interesting. Naomi introduces this name for God, Almighty. 
Prior to this, she's referred to him as Yahweh. And she does here as the covenant Lord, the Lord of covenant faithfulness, the God who demonstrates hesed. But she also refers to him as the Almighty, verse 20, who has dealt bitterly with me. I was full, but ultimately he brought me back empty. I know my sons died because of whatever disease, perhaps. I know my, 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 my husband passed away because of whatever sickness. But I know that the one who was ultimately in control of my being out of control is God. And I'm not denying secondary causes, but I'm looking at the ultimate one. And I'm telling you, in times of bitterness, only our conviction that God is sovereign will keep us. When nothing makes sense, only our conviction that he is wise and sensible will keep us. I have to believe that God is involved. Because if I'm out of control because things are happening to me, and God is out of control, then what hope do I have? I have to say, he's in control. He knows what he's doing, even if I can't see it or feel it. Thank God he's in control. Sometimes you, you look at the future and it's filled with so much fear, so much uncertainty, that I wonder if we weren't convinced that God is in control, how could we press, press on? How could we face it? But it's because he's in control. God is sovereign. And when you go through those things that turn your world upside down, you need to be able to say he's got the world in his hands. My world is upside down. He is sitting on the circle of the earth. He's sitting atop it. He's in control. He's in so much control. The earth is where he lays his feet. It's his resting place. He's in absolute control. So Satan can't lie to you that things have gone out of control beyond repair. My friends, I, I'm not necessarily there. Maybe you're in deeper affliction than me. I don't know when I will be there, or maybe I don't know what will happen. But we need to fight the fight of faith. And this is how you fight it. These are the things that keep us. The Almighty has done this to me. There's something beautiful in that. The Great One. I know who's in control. That's what gives you sanity and stability. I know who is in control. And I know him as my God. And so the last thing is hope. You continue to hope in God. You hope in God. And maybe this present in Naomi's text because she speaks to her God. She's speaking about what he's doing. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. She says, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Maybe Naomi is demonstrating that she's hoping in God because she's still talking to him. And she's thinking of her world, not as an atheist, but as one who knows that God is in ultimate control. And if she's ever going, to, if she has any hope, it's in him. He's the only one who can deliver me from this. He brought me here in the first place. He brought me into it. He's my only hope. Well, whether that's stretching Naomi's conviction or not, that's what we want to arrive at in times of bitterness and sorrow. Hope in him. When everything else seems to have been contriving to steal my hope from me. You know, sometimes we're hoping in fleeting temporal things. You know, we forget that these things are not 
meant to last. And, and, and then God calls us to hope in him. Oh, brothers and sisters, I say this to you again, like, my, like I said, uh, my, my elder one said to me, I, you don't know what trials will before you. I don't, I don't want you to leave here you know, living morbidly or fearfully. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But in reality, it's just true, isn't it? You don't know what's going to before you. You don't know what will happen. You don't know the bad things that can happen in our congregation. Sometimes I look at the size and so many people here, and I think, bad things are going to happen. Bad things will happen. And we must be people who hope in God. We must have faith then. I began the sermon by saying that I was concerned with my own personal limitations when it comes to the subject of suffering and identifying with those who suffer. Even if I had suffered more seriously and deeply than I have in my life, there'd still be significant limitations on how much consolation I could provide for you as a sufferer this morning. Sometimes people have learned the wrong things from their suffering. Even though their suffering is alike to yours, they've learned the wrong things, and so they're or they've learned different things, and so there's not much they can say to you. Sometimes people have suffered deeply as you have, but it's different elements to the suffering, uh, different aspects. And sometimes even if someone has suffered as like as you, they just cannot provide the solution to the mystery of suffering. And so the great hope of Christians this morning is not that we merely have people who can identify with our suffering. But can I say it like this, that we have a God who suffered? I know it's, it's hard to phrase it that way, but when I see Jesus on the cross, the Son of God, I can only say that we have a suffering God. I don't want to take away from God's sovereignty and his purity at all, but I'm, I'm saying that God decided to reveal himself as a God who can suffer with his people, an agonizing Savior, bruised for your sins. And so we can say with great confidence when we go through suffering, God knows because God has come in Jesus Christ and suffered with us. And you know that there is a greater purpose to him suffering. Jesus Christ did not come into the world and suffer with you so that he could know what it's like to suffer. There's nothing, if, if that's all it is, then Jesus is no better than, to some degree maybe, than your friend, your neighbor, who suffered the same way as you. Jesus came into this world to suffer so that he could be our savior in times of suffering so that he could break the curse that allows suffering to happen so that he could fulfill the good purpose and plan that God has for suffering. So now as Christians, we are not suffering alone, but with our savior by our side as part of his plan. And I can say this with confidence, whenever I go through suffering, it's part of his plan to bring me to glory and to bring glory to himself. So in the end, it will all be well. Mary, Mary, I, I've quoted them many times in this pulpit now, I think, have another gospel song. And they simply say, it will all be worth it. That's true. Whatever we go through in this world, because we have Jesus by our side, because we suffer alongside him, and because we suffer for his glory, it will all be worth it. You know, Naomi had no idea at this point that God would provide a redeemer for her later on in Boaz. She couldn't see that. But even greater still, this book ends with a genealogy. 
a strange ending, but it ends with a short genealogy that simply says, ultimately, from the family of this woman, Naomi, came the great King David. Naomi had no idea that her sufferings were given to her because through her, God was going to bring not simply the great king, but the greatest king of them all, the redeemer of the entire universe, because later on in the book, in the New Testament, Naomi's family is linked to Jesus Christ, the greater king than David. She had no clue at the time when she was lamenting like this, that God had such a great and glorious plan. And this is our ultimate consolation. No matter what you and I go through, no matter what the type of suffering is, God has a great and glorious plan in Jesus Christ. We trust him, we follow him, and we know that it will all be worth it. And I've taken your time and I say, let me say one more thing though. I hope today, because all of us suffer in this world, Christian, non-Christian alike, I just hope that when suffering comes your way, you have my Redeemer to put your trust in. I know that my Redeemer lives. What would it profit you? What's the, what's the use of suffering in this body just for it to end in the grave? Suffering in this body just for it to end in judgment. I wonder sometimes how people embark upon old age without having hope in Jesus. Seeing life draw to a close. Seeing that God was true when he said, dust you are and to dust you will return. God was being serious. Seeing it before your very eyes. How do you have hope aside from what the Redeemer is? I'm 35 and I'm already beginning to think, see so many things that, I'm, that I can't do because I'm getting older. And I'm beginning to see dreams have, have gone away from me. And I'm beginning to see that. That's just reality. How do you have hope unless you have one who has overcome the grave? Come and hope in Jesus Christ. Come and hope in the King. He's a redeemer who lives and he has promised to make the bitter sweet. Amen.